This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. If money was a person in your life, how would you describe that relationship? And I have heard things like, the person's a jerk. They don't come around often. Here today, gone tomorrow. Fleeting. So that tells you the relationship around money. Hi, I'm Jamie Buss, and I'm the publisher and editor-in-chief of The Tonic Magazine and producer and host of The Tonic Talk Show and Podcast. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the hype around functional nutrition with Gordon Chang. We'll learn about the money mindset with Hina Khan. We'll find out why restaurants are so expensive with Vito Marinuzzi. And lastly, we'll explore how to thrive with Parkinson's disease with Stephen Eisman. But first, a little bit of business. Omega Alpha is 100% Canadian-owned and has been GMP-certified for manufacturing to pharmaceutical standards since its inception in 1992. It uses only all-natural herbs, vitamins, and minerals in their formulations. The company is site-licensed for manufacturing nutraceuticals by the Natural Health Products Directorate, a division of Health Canada. They have four company divisions, both a consumer line and professional line of human products, equine pet health products, and a custom manufacturing private label division. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit their website at omegaalphainc.com. Omega Alpha's products are created by their scientific team headed by their owner, operator, and CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Dr. Chang holds a PhD in physiology and biomedical engineering from the University of Toronto. He also has two years postdoctoral experience in clinical biochemistry, looking at free radicals and antioxidants. He's published over 20 peer-reviewed articles and conference proceedings, and he's a regular on the show. Welcome back, Gordon. How are you? Great, thank you. It's always a pleasure. I'm putting you to work today, Gordon. I need you to clear something up for the listeners, all right? So there's three things that we're going to discuss in the moment, and I need you to explain what each of them are. The first is dietary supplements, the second is nutraceuticals, and the third is functional food. So let's start at the top. What are dietary supplements? Okay, dietary supplements is usually falls into the category of anything that enhances your diet, okay, other than your major food groups, so other than proteins, carbohydrates, and fats. So anything like a vitamin, a mineral, right, even a herbal extract or botanical falls under the, under the big umbrella of dietary supplements, okay? So this is a general kind of what I call the definition. Okay. Right? Then you have what's called a nutraceutical. Now, the nutraceuticals usually talk about herbals. So anything where you can concentrate 
an active ingredient or extract an active ingredient. So things that would fall in the, into the nutraceuticals would be, say, like a ginseng extract or even caffeine coming from coffee. Well, you could consider that like a nutraceutical because you're getting, when you brew the caffeine, you get the caffeine out of it. And then there's the functional foods. Functional foods are anything which you can enrich that helps with any sort of a disease. For example, something like oats. Oats is considered a functional food because if you eat enough oats, it supposedly helps lower your cholesterol levels, etc. So oats becomes what's called a functional food. The food actually is, you haven't any done much to the oats so it's usually in a whole form as oats yep so no i mean that's a broad definition yeah no that's a great example because you know i actually eat oats five or six days a week for breakfast to help do exactly that with my blood sugar levels and cholesterol levels are all helped by the oats so perfect example let's focus on something else let's focus on a popular mushroom chaga yeah chaga would be something that falls under what I would call the nutraceutical part of the industry, okay? Mm-hmm. You know, the thing with any type of these mushrooms, there's a whole slew of mushrooms out there, right? And all of these mushrooms, they have different compounds that you find in them, and they all, these compounds do many different things. There's a whole slew of new research coming out with mushrooms, right? Yep. But because mushrooms normally falls under the category of food, then it falls under the category of natural products. But mushrooms themselves do many things. One of the biggest things that mushrooms do is that they enhance the immune system. Now, when I say enhance the immune system, it's a broad category, right? It covers a lot of different things. I mean, the people who have used mushrooms for treatment of things like cancer, right? This is in the medical literature, okay? None of this has been approved for use, etc., for treatment of things like cancer or different diseases, but supposedly they work by enhancing the immune system, right? The immune system is one of those things. There are many different things that enhance the immune system. Now, the interesting thing about mushrooms is that one of the biggest components in mushrooms that enhance the immune system is, is something called a polysaccharide, mm-hmm. right? Now, in mushrooms, you also have things like triterpenoids. You have a whole bunch of other compounds, but the compound of major interest is polysaccharides. Mm-hmm. Now, what's interesting about polysaccharides is that the polysaccharides themselves, in order for them to be effective, they have to maintain what's called this normal conformational state. So what that would mean would be like, it has to have a certain shape, right? So if you think of um, a lock and key, the polysaccharides would sit on something in the cell, right? And it has to have that right shape so it'll activate the cells and then the cells then will in turn produce, can produce more white blood cells, etc., and activate the immune system, okay? So you have to have that conformational state. The problem with this is that a lot of times, in days of old, when people were using mushrooms for treatment of any type of illnesses, etc., what they would do, they would boil the mushrooms, mm-hmm. and they would boil the mushrooms. And that boiling process separated out the polysaccharides from the body of the mushroom, and it also enhanced the amount of polysaccharides you're going to get. So meaning that your dosage that you're consuming goes up. Right. Nowadays, a lot of mushrooms I see on the market are powdered. So there's two ways to make the powder. So what they do, they take the raw mushroom, grind it up into a powder form, stuff it into a pill or stick it into a jar and say, here, take one scoop, add it to your drink, mix and down. If all it did was 
powder the mushroom, the whole mushroom, your body actively has to extract out the active ingredients. And that's a long time consuming process because we don't necessarily have the enzymatic process to do this very efficiently. So we do get some, but we don't get a lot. And it takes a long time. Okay. The other way to do it is that they may boil it, take the liquid out, dry off the liquid, and you get a powdered extract. Mm-hmm. Now, the problem with this type of powdered extract is that the mushroom, the polysaccharides, lose their conformational state, meaning that they get all tangled up. And when they get all tangled up, the components that, that would normally sit on the cell can't, may not be even to see the receptors on the cells. So you can't activate the immune system, right? Or the uh, amount that is available to activate the immune system is very little, right? So that's a major problem. Now, if you want to boost your immune system. So normally the best way, whether, you know, like it or not, is tried and true. You take the old-fashioned way, you boil it, right? Mm-hmm. You boil it for several hours, and that's the way you extract out the active ingredient, and you leave it in the liquid form. That's the most optimal way of getting your mushrooms benefits. And not only from chaga, from Coriolis versicolor, for cordyceps, you name the mushrooms, that is probably one of the best ways because you're chasing after the polysaccharide content. You mentioned that polysaccharides are just one of the components in mushrooms. Do you want to talk about some of the other compounds that are relevant yeah, to our health? You see, most of, the, most of the data that we have, most of the information that we have that's been studied are usually based on the polysaccharides. That's yep. why I'm focusing on the polysaccharides, right? There is, you know, the things like polyphenols, and polyphenols you find in some, some of the different mushrooms, and the polyphenols are important to themselves, but their usually major claim to fame is that they have antioxidant effects, right? Mm-hmm. Yep. And things like triterpenoids, again, they have antioxidant effects, right? But we don't have a lot of, a ton of information as, as to how these things actually work, right? Okay. So this is, this is why I, I focus mainly on, on the polysaccharides here. So would you say, like, with respect to the triterpenoids and the polyphenols, like, it's more of anecdotal evidence that they work as opposed to no, scientific? No, no, no. There's some, there's some interesting studies done on them, right? But nowhere close to what we see with the, the polysaccharides. And, and the thing is, a lot of these mushrooms are based, their major claim to fame is the boost immune system. And they seem to affect disease states by focusing on the immune system, right? Or that's what we know so far. Okay, right? and because there's a lot more polysaccharides than any of these other other type of compounds, right? And, and that is why everybody, if you look at mushrooms, the first thing they think of is boosting the immune system, right? right? But there's many different ways of boosting the immune system, right? Uh, if you have, for example, um, autoimmune diseases, right? Boosting the immune system with a certain mushroom might be beneficial because it doesn't boost everything in the immune system altogether at the same time. Right? Okay. So again, you know, there's a lot of research coming out, but the nice thing about mushrooms is that these things have been around for a long time. People have been using them for a long time, so they're very, very safe. Right. Yep. And when people ask, oh, should I take a little bit more, a little bit less, it really doesn't make that much of a difference, okay, because the safety margins are so huge on any type of these mushrooms. Let's talk about some of those mushrooms. So tell me if I'm pronouncing this right, cordyceps. Okay, 
Cordyceps is one of those mushrooms that boosts the immune system, but it's also known to increase energy. I have seen some studies where things like cordyceps have also increased sex drive, right? Mm -hmm. Um, So it's one of those very well-known mushrooms for that. Right. Then you have the, some of the ones like uh, maitake, shiitake, right? Coriolis, versicolor, also known as turkey tail. These things have, have been known to boost the immune system. Right? I've seen several studies where they've used things like the coriolis to treat cancer. Right? And, I, wow. and I put cancer in a broad, and I put cancer in inverted commas, broad strokes. Okay, right? And they have had some good successes with it. Now, I am not advocating that you get off your cancer drugs to use a mushroom, but I would definitely take mushrooms in conjunction with, right? But usually you do this in, con- in consultation with your, your clinician, whoever is treating you. So, right? I mean, this is interesting to me, Gordon, I, and I appreciate your comments, and, and they're well taken. When you say that mushrooms are used you know, in conjunction with cancer, do you mean to alleviate symptoms or do you mean to help with the process of healing from cancer? Usually um, the studies I've seen is to help with the process of healing. Okay. Right? But again, it's a journey. Usually the treatment of cancer is a journey. It's not like one one little thing and it gets done, right? Right. And some of these studies have also been done in a laboratory setting, right? So it's, it's very, very different from treating a whole patient, as I would say, right? But there is enough I would say data to say that as an adjunct to treatment, I mean, I would definitely use it as an adjunct to treatment. Okay, so like one of the mushrooms that you referenced there was shiitake. Now, I like eating shiitake mushrooms. I would imagine that I could never eat enough shiitake mushrooms that I'm going to get any sort of medicinal effect, or, or, or would I, right? You can eat it, but I mean, for you to get any type of what we call medicinal type effect, what we're actually chasing on is some of the, the polysaccharides that we know of, right? right? Yeah. So if you were to just eat it, your digestive process, you can never get enough of it out because a lot of the shiitakes, et cetera, they're plant material. We're not good at digesting plant material. Right. So even so, you may get some, but for you to get what I call sufficient to be an adjunct, you have to consume huge quantity. And let's face it, we will not be able to consume that much. This is why when why people would take an extract, they would basically take a shiitake, boil it for a long, 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 long time, and just drink the liquid. And that liquid extract is a way of getting the the active ingredients out. So think of it like brewing a cup of coffee. Okay. Mm-hmm. If I give you coffee beans and I say to you, here, chew on this, the amount of coffee beans you have to consume to get that hit of caffeine that you normally get in the morning, you'll never be able to get it quick enough, right? Right. Because your body just can't digest it out fast enough. Uh, whereas if you boil it, you brew it, right? You, all your body has to do is to, is to absorb that caffeine through the GI tract. And the GI tract is very good at absorption. Right. Once you have it in a form that is absorbable, it absorbs it very quickly. Okay, Gordon, I, I know that Omega Alpha doesn't deal with psychedelics, but uh, there's a lot of talk about the medicinal value of those types of mushrooms. Uh, you, you care to comment on that today? Yeah. Well, you know what? Right now, I mean, 
the way I was speaking about mushrooms, I was only talking about the mushrooms which will boost the immune system for treatment of regular diseases, etc. Right? Yep. There's that whole segment of mushrooms now, which we call the psychedelic mushrooms, right? And there's a lot of information, a lot of studies now on some of these mushrooms for treatment of things like depression, right? And again, if you're going to consume those mushrooms, those mushrooms are usually not consumed as a liquid extract, but they're consumed, you know, you can smoke it or something like that. Right? That's how those those mushrooms are, I guess, processed and, and, and so on. But there's a lot of regulations on those mushrooms, right? Those type of mushrooms, um, they're not normally used as food, and so they're not part of what we call the the functional foods or anything like that. And because it's under heavy regulations, most companies probably will not get involved with that until the law changes. Agreed. Thank you uh, so much for coming on the show today and telling us about mushrooms. Thank you for having me on board today. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss your money mindset with Hina Khan on The Tonic. The Tonic is brought to you by Purely Natural. Their liquid greens chlorophyll is the only line of soluble, grit-free, and great-tasting greens on the market. Liquid greens can easily be mixed with your favorite drink to provide a sustained natural boost of energy to help you get through your day. There's unflavored, which is great with orange juice. The mint flavor is cool and refreshing. Dark chocolate has all the health benefits of a salad, but with a great chocolate taste. And for that extra detox boost, try activated charcoal and mint. Enjoy the energy. Enjoy the detox. Enjoy the great taste. Purely natural liquid greens. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To get their full benefits, Probiotics must survive harsh stomach acid and get into your intestines alive. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live, active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a range of GPS enteric-coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores, find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Hinnicon guides and mentors people to work through seemingly unbreakable barriers, whether it be creating quantum leaps in their business or exceeding personal goals. She helps people challenge the thoughts and beliefs that are holding them back. Then through extensive work, those thoughts and beliefs are replaced with ones that help to supercharge her client's growth. As a peak performance coach and registered psychotherapist inactive, Hina has been a student of the mind, human behavior, and human potential for almost two decades. For more information, please visit hinnacon.ca. Welcome back to the show, my friend. How are you? I am great. How are you doing, Jamie? I'm doing very well. We're going to talk about something I am 100% certain in all the interviews I've done we've never discussed. No. It's true. We've never done it. So what is a money mindset? This is one of my favorite topics to talk about. Money mindset is really how you think and feel about money. 
what it is in a nutshell. Don't most people like it? <laughs> you would think so. No. Most people are stressed about it. Most people are worried that they don't have enough. Most people are thinking about it a lot. And actually, actually, many people don't like it. They feel like, you know, they grew up with thoughts of money is the root of all. Listeners could finish that sentence for me. People. So there's a lot of different feelings when it comes to money, and that affects what's in your bank account. Okay, so how does that interaction, how does the way we feel about money impact how much money we earn? So let's say you would like to increase your revenue, and you'd like to increase your revenue, and maybe you're an entrepreneur and you have your own business. You're like, I really want to make more money. Mm -hmm. So that's the thought that you have. But the feelings that you have, but then people might think, all I care about is money. I might be judged for it. I don't really need to build it that big. I mean, I have enough. I don't want to be greedy. And then you have those feelings around it. Well, your actions are going to be a reflection of how you feel. So you will procrastinate, self-sabotage, or make excuses. So it directly will impact, but you won't know it because it's all unconscious here, but it will impact what you are receiving when it comes to finances. And look, we see this with lottery winners. It is not uncommon at all for someone to win the lottery, but they don't have a mindset that is in harmony with a large sum of money. So very quickly, they will lose it and even be worse off than before they won the lottery. Hmm. What do you suppose people have that type of relationship with money? Like, how does it come to pass? Is it it how we're brought up? Is it what society tells us? Or is there something else that's driving those types of feelings about money? It's all of the above. The one question that I ask if I really want to find out quickly from a client what their relationship with money is, I'll ask if money was a person in your life, how would you describe that relationship? Hmm. And I have heard things like the person's a jerk. (laughs) They don't come around often. Right. Here today, gone tomorrow. Yeah. Fleeting. So that tells you the relationship around money. And it has to do with the way that we were brought up. For many people, it really wasn't safe. For many people, money was a source of tension in their home. It was the cause of sometimes fights yep. with their parents. Or it was used as manipulation or you had to ask for it. So there's all these range of feelings when it comes to money, by the way that you were brought up. And then there's gender differences as well. I mean, even now, and this drives me crazy, Jamie, you'll see on some social media, people will do these kind of quote-unquote funny little skits of the wife hiding the pack, hiding her Amazon packages, you know, as she's bringing them into the house, like, let's distract the husband. But that has to do with money belief. And especially for women, many times we've been shamed when it comes to money, shamed for what we decide to spend money on, or we've seen this happen in our family. So absolutely, it comes from how money was talked about, what we saw when it came to money in the house that we grew up in, in our family, as well as our culture, too, and the community that we've grown up in. Is there sort of a litmus test to sort of determine what our actual relationship with money is? There's a few different things that you can look at. One is even things of how do you feel when bills come in? Yeah. You know, are you one to open them or do you leave them unopened until the very last minute? Mm -hmm. So it's even like, do you face 
your money situation? Do you know what your money situation is? Most people don't. They don't even know what their money situation is. And also how they feel, yes, when those bills are coming in, and then what are the actions that they're taking? And the other thing to look at is, well, are you happy with your current financial situation? And if you're not, do you feel like you can change it? Do you feel like a victim when it comes to your money situation as well? Hmm. So the one thing I would say is how you feel around interactions with money. How do you feel when you're spending money? Do you beat yourself up over it? So asking for a friend, if you're one of those people that doesn't like opening the bills, if I told you I was that person, what would you tell me about me? Well, I would probably ask you, Jamie, what it feels like when those bills come in. And that friend yeah. may say it feels heavy. Yep. It feel, Also, sometimes if the bills are, let's say, credit cards, it could have to do with what they've spent on yeah. before, and now they have to face it. So with it, Jamie, there's a lot of guilt, yeah. shame, and guilt is for what we do. And shame is about who we are. So sometimes we have shame of how money was when we were growing up. Maybe we didn't have a lot and we feel shame around that or we feel guilty for things we've done maybe in the past when it comes to money, maybe investments that we've made or things that we've purchased that we didn't really feel good about and now the bill is coming in. Sometimes there's anger around it. And it, it can be so layered because I even have had clients who have inherited money, yep. like from a parent passing away, and they feel guilty about that. Hmm. They use it to pay off their mortgage, for example, but they don't feel good about that. And then they feel like they have to hide that. Like they don't even want to talk about it. Not that it's anyone's business, but they're purposely hiding it because they don't, they feel guilt that they were even able to do that. Friends are struggling with mortgages. Yeah. So we've identified the problem. What are some things that we can do to sort of fix our relationship with money? I think you first have to get really honest and take 100% responsibility for your current financial situation. Sometimes you need to have a good cup of tea or something stronger when you're doing it, but you really do. And when you do this, what I would say, Jamie, is if you can, because it is loaded with a lot of emotions, as we said, you want to be as neutral as you can about it or get there. So if there are things that you want to put in place to do repayments or things like that. Anything you can do to automate that, I think it's really great because then you don't even have to put yourself in the situation of having to look at the bills necessarily. You know it's automatically being taken care of. Right. And then after that, once you've taken care of it and you've dealt with your responsibilities, then focus on wealth. Focus on creating wealth. Focus on feeling good about money. How do we do this? There's two things I would want you to think about receiving and having. So right now in the present, if you go to buy a cup of coffee, for example, if you could even just say to yourself, I have the money to buy this coffee and it feels great. I love that I can do this. Even with very little things that you've got that maybe don't seem, you know, very big or big purchase, start to be mindful of those and have those and enjoy those. And then the other thing is, is to be aware of how you're feeling when you're spending. Yep. And it's not about the amount that something costs. It's how do you feel about it? The other thing that I also ask my clients to do is start to really ask themselves, like, what do you want? Like, what do you want? Not because everybody else has this or you feel you should have it. What do you want? And to even start to go into stores and don't look at prices, but 
try things on from what you want. I'm not saying to buy them, but to start to have a different relationship with money and when you're making purchases. So the first thing is taking responsibility, then becoming aware of what you do have. And another big component is receiving. It's your ability to receive. And it can be your ability to receive even in the smallest things like compliments, you know, a free cup of coffee that you win. I remember when my, when my client said, oh, my gosh, how do I expect to receive more revenue when I can't even receive a free cup of coffee? <laughs> yeah. Without, like, rejecting it. So it's your capacity to receive in the everyday things. And you may be saying, what the heck does this have to do with money? It has everything to do with you being available to receive and have what you desire. Because some people, Jamie, they have a money mindset where money can come in, but they can't hold on to it. It's like it comes in so fast and it leaves by the back door just as fast. And they're on that roller coaster. So we want you to be able to, like, call it in, have it, feel easy about it, and have it and hold on to it and enjoy it. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So I understand you have an event coming up on May 18th, right? I do. This is an event. It's three hours. And it's all about, it's a masterclass really on money. And we're going to be talking about things like judgments what you really want, receiving and having, and really going through this five-step process to create financial flow in your life. Okay, so we're going to run a little contest, if it's okay with you. I would love that. Okay, so we're going to give away a free ticket to the Masterclass, which is on May 18th. Yes. Today is May 14th. Yes. So by 4 p.m. today... People are going to write into Jamie at thetonic.ca and tell me what you love about the show. And we're going to pick a winner and we're going to pass it on to Hannah and you get to go to that class. How does that sound, Hannah? Oh, that sounds great. I can't wait to have one of your listeners join in on the class. They're, they're going to love it. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you, Jamie. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss why restaurants are so expensive with restaurateur Vito Marinuzzi on The Tonic. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Suffering with pain or arthritis? Having trouble sleeping due to stress and anxiety? Understand the benefits of medical cannabis science. Optican CB4 relief soft gels are formulated with patented Bezosorb pharmaceutical technology and are clinically proven to deliver four and a half times more CBD into your bloodstream three times faster than conventional CBD capsules. That's reliable relief in a nutshell and in an Optican soft gel. Talk to your doctor or pharmacist and sign up at OptiCan2Ns.ca. You're listening to The Tonic on Sumer Radio. Vito Marinuzzi was born and raised in Toronto's East End and came up in the restaurant industry the old-fashioned way through nepotism. 
His cousin, restaurateur Gio Rana, hired him as a 15-year-old dishwasher and busser and later gave him a shot as a waiter. Vito's job was as much to fight the prevailing whitewashed version of Italian food in Toronto as it was to get people to try the good stuff, and he did. Now, as a co-owner with his famous mom of two locations of seven numbers on the Danforth and Eglinton West, Vito knows the food his kitchens prepare not only preserve that culinary heritage, but innovate within it. Welcome back to the show, sir. How are you? I'm great. How are you? Good. I've got a bone to pick with you, okay? <laughs> You're the sacrificial lamb today, okay? I'm ready. I'm ready. Okay, because so, like, I'm back to going out to restaurants, and you know Naomi and I and our friend group love to go out all the time, and it's hard not to notice how expensive things are getting in restaurants. So I guess my question to you is, are we just being gouged? Are all the restaurants gouging us, or are there real issues behind it? No, I mean, using the word expensive is insinuating that, you know, we're just charging for the sake of charging. It's like, that's fair market value right now. You know, in four years, to have a 40% increase in labor, and then, you know, with all the supply chain issues and the rising costs, I mean, expensive, sure, but that's what it costs to eat out now. Are patrons complaining at all? Is there sticker shock? Are you hearing it? You don't hear it because I think it's, you know, I mean, unless somebody's outspoken, it's a bit embarrassing or maybe, you know, weird to go and say something. You know, I've had one person, I think, in the last two years say something and that's it. But the sticker shock, I mean, yes, for sure it's happening. You know, customer counts are down a little, but prices are up. And so you see people less often. Okay, so that's how it's manifesting? It's quiet. Yeah, it's manifesting quietly because nobody wants to talk about it and admit it, but it's there. It's fact. It's happening. Yeah, I mean, I think as a patron, you get comfortable saying, okay, I know I'm going to spend X dollars and here are my expectations, right? And as a patron, once I get over a certain price point, my view is it's got to be really, really, really good. Otherwise, I'm going to be disappointed. Like you understand that as a restaurateur, right? Like with rising prices go rising expectations, right? Yeah, we're experiencing it firsthand. I mean, I'm also a diner, but I mean, at the same time on the weekend, I was serving tables and I, you know, I was putting down a bill that was, like, for me, too big for two people. And, I, I mean, like, you know, I shied away. I put the bill down and walked away and thought, oh, man, that's expensive. And we're supposed to be the affordable restaurant. Right. You know, and having gone out, I know we're still affordable, but you are. it's tough. Like, you you yeah. are. By the way, when I'm asking you these questions, you know I'm not singling you out no, specifically, no, I, right? Like, yeah, of all the restaurants in the city, I would say you're, you're not a, a major culprit of this. But certainly, I mean, it's noticeable. I've noticed some restaurants... I can see they have to pass some of this along to the diner. And then others are doing it like less so. Some of the Italian restaurants, maybe the pastas and pizzas are up by a buck or two each, but it doesn't, yep. it's barely noticeable, right? It's more noticeable with the proteins, I think. Well, yeah. I mean, the difference between, let's say, myself and a larger restaurant or, or one that has multiple locations would be that I can still offer value. Like yeah. we can both charge 30 bucks for that pasta. What I've noticed is a lot of the restaurants are shrinking their portions to compensate versus raising their prices. Yeah. So we went to a restaurant recently, and I'm not saying we left hungry, but we were like, wow, like those are really small portions. And where I can do better is, or all of us, like single operators, can do better is it's still 30 bucks with me, but the portion hasn't changed. There's still lots of food on the plate. I can, I can amp that up in a place that's you know, watching the numbers really closely or has more costs than I do. Can't. And that's where we will excel always, is value. Right. So I have to charge you the same price? I, I can just give you more. Okay. And so let's talk about some of the costs that are impacting you. You touched upon it off the top. So I know for a fact the government has mandated minimum wage increases. Obviously, that factors into your overhead, right? Right. 
but that's something that I think the public is okay with sure. because if you raise minimum wage, and we all want to pay everybody more, including ourselves. I mean, who doesn't? And I want everybody to, you know, be paid fair and equally. So if you if you use that alone, I think the public says, okay, fine, we all, we all want that. So, but when you pair that with everything else, it's tough, you know. And I don't have the bandwidth to go and figure out why each item is going up. You know, like why is garlic expensive? Why are tomatoes expensive? Why is wheat going up, you know, and to go and dive into each one of those is too much. But I can tell you across the board, there are increases and some of them are a hundred percent over three years ago. Yeah. It's weird. I mean, obviously you're not shopping retail to stock your shelves, but like when I go shopping and I do the shopping for my family, some items it's up a little or maybe not at all. And then yeah. others, and there's no rhyme or reason, right? Like it could be produce. It could be no, proteins. Exactly. Like like, it, like some produce is way more expensive and others is pretty much the same as it has been for the last three years. I use garlic as an example yeah. because that happened to us last week. And then I went to my local grocery store and saw that, oh, wow, like retail, it's more than doubled. And then on my end, it's up about 50%. Right. Weird. Why is garlic up? I have no idea. Right. So, I mean, initially we raised our prices and I was scared and worried. And then we've now started to pull them back because I've taken the time to go and find alternatives or, you know, we're, you know what's working really well is local. So sure. I, buy, I buy all of my protein locally, meats. So they haven't adjusted their prices. Like to buy grass-fed Ontario beef was always expensive, but it hasn't changed in the last two years. Hmm. Whereas USDA is up 40%. So a steakhouse is really getting, you know, they're really taking a hit. For sure. Uh, and then, like this week, we just spoke to all our local farmers for produce. Now, they don't have a lot yet. It's early in the season. But we put, you know, beets on the menu. We put parsnips on the menu. Those things are still coming in locally. They're still coming in at the right price. They're still fine. And then buying from California or Mexico is costing a lot more with fuel prices. Okay. So, as a diner, any, like, inside tips on, you know, if you want to keep your bill down and you still want to go out and support restaurants and have a night out? I mean, the, the easiest way to save money is obviously, you know, drinking is expensive in Canada. Yep. But and that's, that's not what we're talking about. I mean, when it comes to food, I mean, there's no, there's no secret other than to go to somewhere that's maybe small and local where the value is still there versus somebody who's very large and watching their bottom line and with costs rising. Okay. But, I mean, there's no, there's no secret to walking into a restaurant and, and, you know, saving money. I mean, no. I don't think that anybody at my level is gouging. No, I don't think they are. I think they're between a rock and a hard place. And a lot of yeah. a lot of restaurants are trying to make up for what was, you know, a disastrous year and a half because of COVID, right? Like not everybody could pivot. I think initially we all did that. You know, I raised my prices trying to compensate and trying to make up some ground and trying, you know, anything really. You know, we were throwing spaghetti at the wall and seeing what sticks. And then now we're all adjusting and pulling back and I mean, I'm readjusting my prices so that we become a bit more valuable and we can compete. And at a small level, I can take a bit of a hit on food costs. You know, it just comes out of my bottom line or my pocket, but I'm willing to do that to keep things going. Yeah, I guess we've gotten used to it over the last two or three years. Okay, so in addition to the prices going up, I'm noticing some things that restaurants are doing that, quite frankly, I mean, I understand it, but it's still a little bit off-putting. Like, so for example... Everybody comes to the table, you know, everybody's paying through the little mobile. Nobody's paying cash anymore. You know, you, you right. tap your card, right? But automatically, the tips used to be, you know, if you were, you know, less than generous, it would be something under 15. 15 was the de rigueur and 20 was like for outstanding service. And I remember back in the day when like you would only be tipping on the food and not the taxes and not the alcohol. But now when they come around with the predetermined, you know, rates, 
you know, 18 is the low, 20 is like average, and more than 20% tip is like nice, and you're tipping on everything. And to my mind, that's a bit bonkers considering how expensive everything else is. I agree with you, which is, you know, I almost think like I shouldn't, but when you get that machine, that is a post tax bill with everything right. on it, and you're hitting 20, which is really 20, whatever, 24. Yeah. You know, and the norm, like, I mean, I see, we see it every day. The norm is 20. Like, we closed the night out last night, and tips were 20% post-tax. And that's the norm. It's just how it, yeah. it's just gone there. It is a bit bonkers. I mean, you should press other, and you should type in 18. Yeah, that's what I've been doing. I mean, that's what I've been doing, and I feel bad doing it. It's not the server's fault. Like, they're do- they're doing okay. No. By the way, like, I think service has really taken a hit since COVID. Like, and, and, and we're putting up with it because everybody was understanding during COVID. But, like, yes. man, I've received some poor service from some restaurant groups that are very, very savvy and know their stuff. And I was, it was shocking to me. I had this conversation yesterday. I was at a restaurant I was excited to go to. And, you know, the the first person you meet at the door is really, you know, not well-informed. And then we sat down and we were served by somebody who was very young, which is nothing wrong with that, but clearly inexperienced. But that's part of the shortage we have in staff. And I was able to hang on to most or all of my staff. But, I mean, some of them moved on into new careers, moved out of the city. I mean, this is a real shortage. When you have a large restaurant, you have no choice. You know, like last summer, we were short, you know, three people, but customers were, you know, they're come climbing to the windows to eat in the restaurant, and we couldn't serve them all. I mean, we just didn't have capacity. But the big guys can't do that. They have to just put bodies on the floor. Yeah. But I would agree with you. There's definitely a lower degree of service right now in all of Toronto. And when you find, like, that spot that's got the experienced server, you really notice. And so, like, you know, I had other questions, but we're, we're kind of out of time. So I want to end by saying... Despite all my bitching and carping, so thank you for letting me get it off my chest. <laughs> I still support restaurants. I love restaurants. You know, you know me, right? Like I love to eat. I love going yeah, out. Absolutely. We've been out together. You know, so I would still say, you'll agree with me. We got to support the restaurants, the mom and pa restaurants in particular, right? Yeah, you really got to, you know, the old whatever, like the adage, support local and support everybody around your neighborhood. That's it. And, I mean, luckily, I mean, that's not going to change. People love to dine out. There's a romance there with dining out. And regardless of what it costs or what the service level was, you are still going to go out. We love going out. And, I mean, we'll bounce back. In, in the next six or 12 months, you'll see a shift in the industry. Yep, I hope so. Thanks so much for coming on the show today. Oh, thanks for having me. For more information about Vito and his restaurant, Seven Numbers, or maybe to book a reservation, go to sevennumbers.com. We don't take reservations on The Tonic, but you can find lots to read and listen to if you go to thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss how to thrive with Parkinson's on The Tonic. Here's your third segment stretch with Angelica Scanura. We are going to do a thoracic wall stretch. Whether you work at a desk or not, chances are you spend a lot of time with your shoulders rounded inwards and your head pitched forward. I like to do this first thing in the morning as I tend to sleep curled up in a ball. It really opens me up. Find some free wall space and stand facing the wall. Place your hands flat against the wall slightly above your head, shoulder distance apart. Step away until your arms are stretched while keeping your hands flat on the wall. While keeping your legs stretched, start to bend from the hips until your body becomes a 90 degree angle. 
you want to think of your armpits as trying to kiss the wall, even though that is not our objective. You will feel a stretch in your pec muscles and all the muscles that are attached to the shoulder blades and the ribs. You must engage your abs as they provide support for your lower back. Hold for 10 seconds at a time and then release before doing it again and again for about two minutes. This stretch has the potential to be quite intense, so make sure that it always feels enjoyable. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. Ever wonder if your probiotics are really working for you? To get their full benefits, probiotics must survive harsh stomach acid and get into your intestines alive. Clinical studies prove that enteric coating guarantees safe intestinal delivery of live, active probiotic cells. New Roots Herbal offers a range of GPS enteric-coated probiotics formulated to meet your specific needs. Available exclusively at fine health food stores, find them in the refrigerated section. To ensure these products are right for you, always read and follow the label. This is The Tonic on Zoomer Radio. Since his diagnosis with young onset Parkinson's disease nine years ago at the age of 48, Steve Eisman has worked to maintain his ability to continue his passion for athletics and especially cycling. He's turned this passion into a cause with a cycling group called the Rigid Riders that he co-founded with a friend four years ago to encourage people living uh, Parkinson's in the GTA to take up cycling for health community, and disease modification. This June, he'll be joining three of his friends to take the Rigid Rider concept on the road with an event called the Spinning Wheels Tour, riding across Canada from Victoria to St. John's to personally deliver this message to able-bodied Canadians living with Parkinson's disease. Get moving to stay moving. We'll show you how. Welcome to the show, Steve. How are you? I'm great, Jamie. Thanks so much. So what got you interested in cycling? Initially, it was uh, my sister who needed somebody to cycle with, and it opened a, a, a world for me. I started seeing the world on a bicycle, and it, it frankly, uh, the fitness uh, and the uh, the sights that you see, uh, it makes it uh, so worthwhile. Makes total sense. I mean, I love I spin, but I don't cycle. But just getting outdoors and just sort of seeing nature, you know, and, and going to those places where you can get to with bikes and walking is, is just amazing for the soul. Well, I, I hatch the attitude like you, you could uh, drive up to the top of a mountain and, and have a great lunch uh, with a great view. But it's even sweeter if you sort of earn the summit. For sure. 100 percent. So is that what inspired you with the idea of Rigid Riders or what was behind that? I was going to charity events, uh, uh, help raise money for, for Parkinson's events or Parkinson's uh, research. And, uh, you know, they were great, uh, well-supported, uh, uh, lots of wonderful uh, people. But what I didn't see were other people with Parkinson's. Hmm. And it drove me uh, nuts because research was uh, coming out about uh, how beneficial uh, exercise, and particularly cycling, was uh, to, the, uh, to help ameliorate the, the symptoms of uh, Parkinson's. And yet, I was alone. Hmm. So I, I started asking friends, you know, I'm a cyclist, if, if they, they would join me. Uh, and to a person, uh, they said, uh, impossible. 
Hmm. I can't do this. Why? Because the physical manifestations of Parkinson's or they just thought they couldn't do it? That was the, the very point. You know, when they got there, the day of their diagnosis, uh, things seemed, to, seemed to, to change for them. They started thinking about their limitations. And I wanted to grab them by the shoulders and tell them, the day of your diagnosis, nothing changed. Right. The abilities that you had that day remained with you. Your perception changed. Now, I, I'm, I'm not naive. You know, there are, st- there are legitimate uh, stability issues that, that, that people encounter. There are strength issues and, uh, and, and the sort. But there's also uh, fear and uh, anxiety and uncertainty. And uh, if those can be wafted away, there is so much uh, skill and ability uh, still left. So what is it about cycling that helps to manage the symptoms of the disease? So it's still being studied. I don't have a, have a, a clear physiological understanding of it yet. Uh, I understand that it, it may uh, affect the, the, the brain chemistry and, and, or, or uh, the tone of the muscle can, can help uh, supplement uh, where other uh, functionality has, has uh, suffered over time. I have my, my own... Uh, yeah, like what does it do for you? When I get rolling, my circulation really starts starts uh, flowing, and that 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 just seems to have such a, a great benefit. Everything everything comes together. With Parkinson's, especially early on, there's half of your body is afflicted more than more than the other half. So you feel it differently in your legs and in and in your in your arms. And for cycling, you know, if if you were if you were running in that state, you know, with one strong strong leg, maybe you'd run with a limp, and maybe right. it would eventually hurt your knees and your hips. Right. But with cycling, it's all feeding into one axle. Right. And, and I think I think that's the thing that that that, that gives it its particular advantage. And like for me, post workout, the endorphins just make me feel better. Are you getting that reaction for you? Is that more pronounced because of the Parkinson's, or, or do you find that it's helpful to you? Do you know when when I go away on uh, vacations, when when I'm traveling and I do uh, cycling for multiple days at, at a time, I go through this incredible me- metabolic uh, change. And after about four days of, of constant uh, cycling, my whole uh, body turns into energy production, and man, I feel great. Yeah, it, it always seems crazy to stop. <laughs> Of course. So let's talk about the Spinning Wheels Tour. So how did that come about? How were you inspired for that? Well, so it was through the observations that, that I had with the with the this Rigid Riders program. Rigid Riders program was the a group that we that we started to get people into the saddle. And our and our premise was, you know, they were almost to a person. Everybody was was very reluctant to, to start, but through sure. encouragement, uh, you know, we did get them in, into the saddle. And we're in our fourth year now, and our, our team is about 60 riders. Oh, wow. And at the culmination of, of each year, you know, we, we go through the, the spring and summer doing uh, training uh, rides every, every Sunday morning. And at the end of the, the summer, we go for a, a long ride. It's um, a traditionally a 40K, and, and we do it in, in association with, uh, you know, a, an event that, that might be going on somewhere, like uh, the Pedaling for Parkinson's event. So with the 40K ride, it's a point of pride that in now we've done three years of it. Every single person has crossed the finish line, wow. despite almost every one of them saying from the outset, this is not possible. Right. So that got me, got me thinking about, uh, you know, there's, there's 100,000 people in Canada living with Parkinson's. About 80 to 90% of them are not in touch with any sort of formal support network for, for Parkinson's. 
and almost certainly not with a, a, a collection of people who are involved in cycling or, right. or, or in intense uh, physical athletics. And I find it heartbreaking. And I'm so impressed and in awe of, of the, the, you know, the 60 riders who, who showed uh, such courage and made such advances. And I really think that that spirit can be shared and expanded uh, across the country. Okay, so what are the goals? What do you hope to achieve by the tour? Uh, for one, it's reaching this 80 to 90 percent who are going it alone right right now. Yeah. We also want to, there's, there are a number of charitable uh, causes that are uh, set up to, to help people deal with their symptoms through exercise and, and different wellness programs. Uh, so we want to uh, uh, bring a, a light to them uh, and to help them raise funds to do their good work. And, uh, you know, I, I was sitting around with the, the people that we're going with, that I'm going to be riding with, uh, uh, Mike Logren, uh, his wife uh, uh, Darlene, and uh, uh, Jim Redman. And uh, I said, you know, at the end of the day, what's most important uh, for this ride? And we decided having fun. Everything else will flow from that. I think that's right. That's great. So what's this going to look like, this ride across Canada? Like, tell me about a day. Like, what, what's it going to look like? Well, there's a lot of cycling. Yeah, uh, I bet. So we're, our, our route, we're sort of taking a, a, saw, a, a saw blade uh, a route across the country. We're, we are trying to go community to community and, and, and talk with people with, with Parkinson's. And so it's going to be about 8,500 kilometers. Wow. Our, our pace will be about 150 kilometers a day, six days a week. Oh, my gosh. For, for uh, about three months. Uh, so this is a, a you know a really quite a big uh, commitment for us. Well, that's fantastic. When you're done, when you achieve your goal, because I have no doubt that you will, will you come back on the show and tell us about the, the highs and the lows and and how it all went? Boy, I, I'd love to, I'd, and I'd love to. I have my my fingers crossed that I come back as a champion. I'm sure you will. If people wanted to reach out to you and, and support this endeavor, what should they do? There's a, a couple of ways. Our website uh, is about to launch. It's uh, www.spinningwheelstour.ca. They can contact me directly at steve at spinningwheelstour.ca. And on May 31st, uh, we're going to be having an, a launch event, and we're encouraging uh, people with Parkinson's, particularly if they want to give cycling a try, uh, to come and join us. Uh, and uh, they should contact me at, at the uh, email address that I gave, and I'll give all particulars if they need. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you so much, Jamie. That was Stephen Eisman. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Dr. Gordon Chang, Hina Khan, Vito Marinuzzi, and Stephen Eisman. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The May-June issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. 
On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.